Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. Howdy, y'all. What is good? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles. We are on segment two of this mini-series going through Scott Hahn and Benjamin Weicker's book, Politicizing the Bible. Um, this is one of my all-time favorite, favorite books. I mean, if if you are even remotely interested in like the history of biblical scholarship um, and how it got to where it is today and how even like society and like government, right, got to where it is today, this book is, I mean... It's one of the best, right? Especially for those interested in um, political philosophy and the development of political philosophy. This is just a super fascinating book. I'm not getting paid. This is not an ad. <laughs> um, I don't get paid for this podcast. Uh, we do it uh, from the church for full freeze. Um, and so it's one of those things where I'm not not getting paid to advertise this book. This book is just bomb, y'all. And and I really, really enjoy it. And so uh, last week we talked uh, about, about Marsilius, about William of Ockham kind of laying the foundation as those first two big thinkers. We were talking about the history of the Holy Roman Empire and about that conflict uh, between uh, its um, its monarch and the Pope at the time. And also there's a bit of a conflict between uh, the Pope at the time and the Franciscans and that whole use ownership debate. Uh, But this week we are shifting gears and uh, to the best of my ability and and also going with uh, the, the order of the book, you know, Scott Hahn, Hahn and Weicker really try to go chronologically. But that being said, a lot of these figures that we're now moving into, a lot of them kind of do overlap in a lot of different ways. And so it's not going to be perfectly chronological. Um, but this week we are talking about Machiavelli, right? Uh, this dude is a punk. Um, <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about him uh, today. And, and a lot of times people might be surprised at why Machiavelli comes into the picture when it comes to biblical interpretation, uh, but he does, and he uses the Bible to reach political ends. Um, Machiavelli, for those who don't know, he's born in Florence in 1469, um, and so just a bit of a, a history, right, about um, Italy at the time. So for those who don't know, Italy as we know it today, like the boot, um, wasn't always the boot, right? Um, so the Italy of antiquity of Rome, it was just the Roman empire, right? Obviously the Roman empire controlled most of Europe, North Africa, a good chunk of the middle East as well. But after Rome fell, then you have the Holy uh, Roman empire that eventually emerged. Um, Charlemagne who reconquered, tried to, you know, reform the Roman empire, never really got as big as it was, but he, that's what he called it. Uh, but eventually we get to this the situation in Italy where we have these five different countries or regions, or essentially they were just city states, right? Um, so, you know, those who are familiar with like their ancient Greek uh, history, uh, Greek had this city state system where, you know, the, there was one country or region of Greece, right? There's like an ethnic, ethnic, you know, uh, culture there of, of Greece, but then there was these city, you know, Sparta, Athens, and all these things, uh, and it's kind of what it looked like in Italy um, at the time of of Machiavelli. We have Florence, right? We have Venice, Milan, Naples, and the Papal States. A lot of people forget that the current Vatican, right, which is its own little country in the middle of Rome, 
used to be the papal states, right? The, the Vatican used to like own a quite a bit of land in Italy. It wasn't just this small little, you know, uh, Vatican city in the middle of Rome. It was the papal states, right? So this is in the era of, you know, when the papacy had a lot of uh, political and spiritual power. And so, you know, we, we have this situation of, of a lot of fighting between these uh, politicians in these, in these uh, cities, in these regions of Italy. Um, and really, you know, being born in 1469 and, you know, between 1470 and 1530, we have kind of like, not kind of, we have arguably the six worst popes in our history, right? There's some bad popes, you know, before and after this as well. But these guys were like the head honcho of like just total garbage human beings. Um, and they were elected pope um, a lot of times through bribery, through, uh, you know, uh, politicking and all these things. And so a lot of these popes had like more kids than most people did, right? They had mistresses. Um, they were greedy. They were, they were corrupt. They wanted power. Um, and as a Catholic, you have to just acknowledge the fact that this is a re this was a reality. This is in our history. There, you can't hide from it. There's so there's, it's so obvious uh, between the histories of the time before, during and after, like these popes were just absolute, just garbage human beings. And so somebody might argue is like, well, how can, you know, papal infallibility be the case if you had these garbage human being popes? How can you say that the Holy Spirit, you know, uh, elects the popes and all these things? Well, as a Catholic, you say a few things. Uh, papal infallibility doesn't pertain to uh, the, the person who the, of the pope, right? Essentially, papal infallibility really only comes into play when the, the pope speaks ex cathedra, so an ex cathedra statements, which has only happened like, two times, I think, in the history of our 2,000 years of a Catholic church. Ex cathedra, you know, basically being he speaks from the chair of Peter, so with the authority of Peter. And I think both of those statements were actually about Mary and dogma. Um, and so all popes, when they obviously their words have weight, so their words um, carry a lot of uh, gravitas with them, but they only are uh, infallible in matters of faith and morals when they're speaking ex cathedra. Um, which none of these popes did. Praise the good Lord, right? Holy Spirit got our back. Um, and we would say that, you know, God allowed these popes to uh, take take the papacy. Um, he did not will it, will it most likely, but he allowed it to his permissive will in order to bring back some mysterious greater good that we might never know until we die. Um, probably won't never know until we die. Um, and then we, we see God face to face. So, I mean, we have like the Medici popes, like Pope during this time, right? And you've probably heard of the Medicis and all the craziness of the Renaissance in, in, in Italy. And, and so Machiavelli was raised in this very, very corrupt, politically combative, uh, you know, culture of the time, right? And so there's, there's infighting, corrupt popes, and Machiavelli grew up, he's grown up watching all this, right? He doesn't come from a super rich family. He's, he's a Republican, um, not like, as in like Democrats, Republican today, as in like a, he was like somebody who was decently educated, but like they weren't rich, they weren't aristocracy. Um, and so uh, we have this, I, this, this reality in Machiavelli where he was raised around this very, very uh, culturally corrupt Ital uh, Italian states, right? These, these corrupt popes, and everybody knew they were corrupt. Everyone knew the popes had mistresses. It wasn't like some big secret that we discovered later on. Like everybody at the time knew how messed up these popes were. And so, uh, you know, 
throughout his uh, life, he ends up being a scribe to several of these uh, really important figures, a pope, some some uh, city-state lords. And so he, he views a lot of these politically corrupt figures doing what they have to do to consolidate their power. And so he grows up in the court. Uh, eventually, he does get arrested, though, for political reasons. Um, some uh, family gets, comes into power, doesn't like him, gets arrested. And eventually he gets um, banned from uh, Florence, says, get out of here. You know, we won't kill you, but but move move on with your life. Get out of here. And he ends up moving to the country and he uh, did this to a house that his dad had left him. And so just to get you a, a glimpse into Machiavelli, um, I said earlier, he's a punk and I, he <laughs> he is a punk. Um, Han, Han and Weicker say this about, about Machiavelli. So we read this. So this is about his routine while after he was exiled. So he gets up in the morning with the sun and for two hours oversees woodcutting on his property. A not very successful way of alleviating poverty for a man who spent 15 years directing the Republic and negotiating in person with kings, princes, cardinals, and popes. He reads love poetry. He reads Dante, uh, Petrarch, Tibullus, Ovid, and quote, I remember my own and enjoy myself for a while in this thinking, end quote. Machiavelli's amours would have provided much food for reverie, given his countless mistresses before and after marriage, the frequency of his visits to brothels, and his appetite for unusual and, so it was alleged, unnatural sex acts. He then stops by an inn for the news of the day, goes home to eat with his family, then comes back to the inn and quote, becomes a rascal for the whole day, end quote. Playing games and cursing with the hosts, a butcher, a miller, and two bankers to, quote, scrape the mold off my brain and satisfy the malady of this fate of mine. Okay, so they're essentially just quoting, like, what he would write down. So, yeah, Machiavelli, he was, <laughs> he was just a tool, man. I don't know what else to say. Um, he was a guy that uh, he wanted power, right? Eventually got kicked out. Um, he was never an open atheist, but I, I would be very hesitant to say that he was a Christian. I think, uh, cause at the time it wasn't super politically uh, expedient to say you're an atheist, right? Just because, I mean, the, the church was so influential in everything. And so you would know, like all these people, a lot of these people that we're going to study throughout the series, a lot of them are never going to come out and say, hey, I'm an atheist, don't believe in God, church, whatever. Um, but like their actions and words basically say that, right? Um, and so while he's not a self-proclaimed atheist, I think he's an atheist. I would I would argue very strongly that he's an atheist. Atheist. He lives a very atheistic lifestyle, very, very hedonistic atheistic lifestyle where, I mean, he sleeps around, he goes to brothels, he he drinks and he, he does all he does all the things that an hedonist would do because that's what he is, right? Um, and so his most famous book um, is a book called The Prince. And so this is a book that you probably had to read uh, if you went to college and like it's like a very now classic, quote, classical um, political uh, philosophy text. Um, and it's a book that if you haven't read, um, I would first read Politicizing the Bible and then read that book um, because you need some kind of foundation philosophically, theologically, before you can see the errors in other people, right? Uh, if you just start with other people, you're going to think, oh, wow, they sound pretty good. Like, they must be right about something. Um, when 
honestly, the prince is just a load of garbage. Um, <laughs> um, and if you want to talk to me more about that, we can. If you really like the book and I just offended you, I'm not even sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm not sorry at all. But anyway, um, the book, the reason he writes the book is to write about how things actually are, right? Um, so there's a quote here um, that I'll read for you guys. Um, so, oh, where's the page? I lost it. Okay, cool. So, this is what he says. But since my intent is to write something useful to whoever understands it, it has appeared to me more fitting to go directly to the effectual truth of the thing than to the imagination of it. And many have imagined republics and principalities that have never been seen or known to exist in truth. For it is so far from how one lives to how one should live that he who lets go of what is done for what should be done learns his ruin rather than his preservation. For a man who wants to make a profession of good in all regards must come to ruin among so many who are not good. Hence, it is necessary to a prince, if he wants to maintain himself, to learn to be able not to be good and to use this and not use it according to necessity. Um, all right, so essentially what's he saying? The point of his book isn't to talk about the quote-unquote republic of the imagination, right? So he's, he's talking about things like Plato's Republic, uh, which is a really great read. If you've never read Plato's Republic, you should read it. It's fascinating if nothing else. Um, he's talking about Aristotle's vision of ideal governments. Um, and he's talking about essentially uh, ancient views of political philosophy. What is the ancient view, views that Aquinas holds, views that the church even holds, um, if you, and, and Plato and, and Aristotle? Well, it's that politics, right? The via antiqua, the, the road of antiquity. Politics should conform to the standards of right reason and justice, right? What does that mean? It means that we should set up political systems in conformity to reason, in conformity to justice, right? We, the, the political system should be geared towards justice and true and good reason, right? Um, and right reason. It should be conformed, it should be formed in such a way to empower the people to pursue virtue, to pursue uh, the good life, right? Um, and it should be, that means it's going to be an abstract concept that you then try to implement, right, to the best of your ability. But for Machiavelli, he he thinks it's useless, right? He says so in that quote we just read. He, these are these are pointless. If you try to do those things as a prince, you're just going to get overthrown. You're just going to get killed. So Machiavelli really begins this via Moderna that Occam and, and Marsilius kind of started. He, he continues on this via Moderna, this modern road. So he says that basically the political goal is the preservation of power, right? His book, he's writing to princes, he's writing to people, in order to teach them how to how to build, maintain power, right? Because that's actually what's what's uh, effectual truth. He says that's what's that's what's the most useful thing. It's not about living up to a certain ideal. It's not about living uh, up to a certain standard and forming a government around that ideal and standard. No, he doesn't really care about that. He doesn't care if you're a good person or not. He just wants to met, let you know what is necessary to maintain your power as a prince. So. The state for Machiavelli is an expression of the power of someone or some group over others, right? That's all the state is. The state isn't something that's set up in order to bring about the good of the, the populace. The state is an expression of power, right? That's all it is. 
So we also have the question of, you know, why is Catholics with the Bible talking about Machiavelli? Why is why bring this up? Well, it's because Machiavelli is super influential on biblical interpretation, and he does a few different things to do this. So for Machiavelli, right, the, the, the kingdom of heaven is a problem, right? Because it falls into that category of imaginary worlds, right? These imaginary republics like Plato and Aristotle set up, right? Um, and, and so it, it, the kingdom of heaven, because it's not something in this world, it's, uh, it's not effectual truth, right? Christianity makes princes ineffectual for Machiavelli, right? Because if your goal is an ideal, then what you do in this life is just not as important for Machiavelli, right? This main, maintaining of power in this life doesn't really matter as much if the ideal, if the goal is this imaginary kingdom for Machiavelli. And so he changes exegesis in a few ways, right? So in chapter six of The Prince, he does this thing. He examines people who founded, quote, new principalities or new kingdoms. And this is his list of people that he examines, starting with Moses then Cyrus, then Romulus, Theseus, and the like. That's a quote. Moses, Cyrus, Romulus, Theseus, and the like. Romulus being the founder of Rome, Cyrus being um, of Persia. And so he starts with Moses, though. And he, he does this very intentionally, right? So, you know, somebody, you might be surprised to think of, you know, it's like, wait, Moses, like, he's a, he's a prophet. Like, did he, he's not a prince, but for Machiavelli, he was a prince and a prophet. He actually, Machiavelli calls all these people prophets, right? So it's a little subtle twist that he does. Why? Because for Machiavelli, he needs to get these Christian princes to see that even in the Bible, there's th these figures do what they have to do to solidify power, right? So he's going to very, very intentionally twist scripture in this interpretation in order to politicize it, right? For his, to reach his political ends. So he very, in a certain way, subtly places scripture as a historical document to be read alongside other histories about other princes. What I mean by this? Well, especially with Cyrus, right? Because Cyrus is in the Bible. We read about him in Isaiah. We, 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 he's known as, you know, as a God's main man to overthrow Babylon, right? Uh, but Machiavelli very intentionally doesn't use scripture when he talks about Cyrus, right? He uses uh, another historical document that I can't pronounce the name. It's some weird name. Anyway, um, and he does this very intentionally, right? He's, he's very subtly and kind of, you know, in the back of your mind, setting you up to think, oh, Bible isn't very reliable historically, whereas other historical documents are, right? So he's really one of the first guys that sets up this false dichotomy between Bible and real history, Right. And so he does this. He looks at Cyrus, but doesn't use anything from the Old Testament with Cyrus. He only uses his other document, right? So he uses pagan authors as a guide to read the Bible, to find the quote-unquote real truth, the hidden truth in the Bible. So he's using these pagan, non-Christian figures in order to read the Bible. Um, and that's kind of a big part of the Renaissance, right? The Renaissance period at the time, they were rediscovering Aristotle and Plato and all these these uh, figures that were around BC, right? And it, there was a lot of tension at the time because they were there was this question of, well, is this reason, is this truth, truth? But what happens when it's contrary to Revelation? Which one do we pick? Do we try? To, what do we try to do? And you have, you have figures like Aquinas 
who takes Aristotle and, and fixes his problems, right? He takes a lot of the good and a lot of the, just the very reasonable, very true things that Aristotle kind of gets to logically, and he fixes them in light of revelation, right? In light of what we know. And so the, he, Machiavelli, the Bible's true meaning can only be uncovered if one puts aside faith, right? And that's what he's doing. He's using these pagan sources and these pagan documents to read the Bible. So he's, he's putting aside faith in order to get to the quote unquote real and true meaning of the Bible, right? So Machiavelli ignores all biblical sources in favor of quote unquote more reliable ones, right? And so what he does with Moses, right? Moses being the first prince he lists and the first prophet he lists. So Moses, he sets up as a purely political figure who controlled by force, right? Force and fear. So this is a quote here um, from Machiavelli. So he says, all the armed prophets, so once again, he's saying like all these people, he's talking about prophets, not just Moses. All the armed prophets conquered and the unarmed ones were ruined. Four, the nature of peoples is variable and it is easy to persuade them of something, but difficult to keep them in that persuasion. And thus things must be ordered in such a mode that when they no longer believe, one can make them by force. Moses, Cyrus, Theseus, Romulus would not have been able to make their peoples observe their constitutions for long if they had been unarmed, as happened to our own times to Brother Gralamo of Savannah, uh, some weird word, I can't pronounce it, some dude. Anyway, so what's, what's he saying, right? He's saying that these laws that we know as the Ten Commandments, the Deuter, uh, all the laws in Deuteronomy, this constitution that he, the word he uses, he says that the people of Israel could be convinced for a time, but they had to be enforced uh, through force of arms, right? And so, and he uses the story of when uh, Moses comes back from getting the Ten Commandments and the, he summons the Levites to slaughter all these people that were uh, quote-unquote playing or fornicating and worshiping the golden calf, right? And so he uses that. See, Moses just coming to political power, setting up his laws, all of a sudden, people are not doing what he says, and so he kills them, right? So he interprets this as, a, as Moses, as he's a political figure, solidifying his political power, right? And so for Machiavelli, religion is only a tool in order to maintain order along with force, right? So Machiavelli talking to this, these princes, right, saying like, hey, like, don't get me wrong, like, religion's not all that bad. You can use religion in order to control the masses, to control the populace, right? Along with your sword to back it up, right? Um, and, you know, he says a lot of these things because honestly, I mean, part of it is because that's what he saw growing up with these corrupt popes, right? That's what he saw growing up with these city-states fighting. So religion for Machiavelli isn't, you know, true or false. It's just whether or not it's useful, right? So for the, for the prince, for Machiavelli, princes should allow religion into their states, into their governments, um, into their countries, if they are useful, right? But if they're not useful, then don't allow them in, right? Uh, if they help you control the masses, then cool, like awesome, right? And so we have this very politicizing nature for Machiavelli, right? And so um, what are his effects kind of on scholarship today, right? There's a lot more we could talk about. Um, we can read politicizing the Bible if you want to know more. Um, but kind of in summary, right? So for Machiavelli, we have this downplaying of the Old Testament priests as corrupt, right? As a corruption of true religion, right? Um, and because why? Because the current papacy is so corrupt, right? That the that he views the popes 
as people, as dudes, men, who are there for political gain, political power, and they use religion as a stick to beat the masses with, right? So he's reading that into the Old Testament as well. So there's this, once again, this hermeneutic of suspicion in Scripture. He's reading it very suspiciously, which is going to affect a lot of people moving on. Um, also, he's he's one of the first guys. He's really just treating the Old Testament as a as a historical document to be studied alongside other historical documents from antiquity, right? So he's not reading it as scripture, not reading it as revelation. He's reading it as purely a historical document, right? He studies Moses alongside with Cyrus and Romulus and all these guys, right? So he's once again this this it, this continued growth of secular secularism in you know, play with scripture that we started last week and we're going to continue to see this continue to grow. Right. Um, and so, and then, you know, like we said before, Bible has like a, a hidden message that only, that only the wise can see. Right. So here's kind of a lengthy quote. Um, but I think it's very good. And it kind of summarizes this. So uh, Han and Weicker say, um, about Machiavelli, perhaps, uh, actually, let's get back and start. Sorry. Lengthy quote here. According to the text, the rebels were miraculously destroyed. So this is when uh, the, the Koroth rebellion was struck down and by God who swallowed them into a hole. We say this, they were miraculously destroyed. When at the word of God and then Moses, the earth split open and the swallowed them. It's number 16. If such a miraculous punishment actually happened, then Moses would be a real prophet of a real God and not merely a political prince using religion to maintain his power. But that would obviously undermine Machiavelli's entire teaching. Therefore, to reason about Moses with Machiavelli means to offer an account of what really happened, uh, appearances or reports in the text to the contrary. Perhaps Moses secretly had a trap dug near the rebels' tent and then carefully covered it. Or knowing the rebels' designs, he contrived to have them camp upon fragile ground that had been washed out by an underground stream. Or even more likely, later writers could simply have made the story up to cow anyone who challenged the priesthood. Any such explanation will do as long as it supports Machiavelli's philosophy and shuns the miraculous, right? So in future biblical exegesis, Machiavelli's mode of procedure is repeated, but in the service of other philosophies, such as Stoicism, Deism, Hegelianism, Liberalism, or Marxism. The pattern set is one in which the philosophy, no matter how far removed it is from the assumptions of the biblical text, becomes the secret knowledge that allows the exegete to wield the exegetical threshing tool. Passages that fit become the key to illumination. Passages that do not must either be reinterpreted against the apparent meaning or inferred to have some less than noble source. In Machiavelli's case, he can attribute anything miraculous either to the cleverness of the wise who feign some miracle or pretend to have a vision from the God or to the stupidity of the masses, or to both. The task of the enlightened exegete, then, is to ferret out all the, quote, real passages, the ones that fit the philosophy, and reinterpret the rest, giving some other explanation for their appearance in the text. Right? So, the last thing, they say this. For this reason, it is ultimately misleading to designate the historical critical method as historical and critical, since history is understood according to the critical framework of a quite particular philosophy. So Machiavelli really is the guy who sets the foundation for everyone else we're going we're gonna to talk about and uh, modern scholars today kind of, you know, they have this philosophical predisposition that they bring to the text, right? 
And anything that doesn't agree with them, they have to explain away. There's this hermeneutic of suspicion. There's this hermeneutic of doubt, right? And so this is, he really opens up the floor to a lot of enlightenment thinkers that we're going to get to as we go. Um, so that was a lot in a little bit of time and I uh, hope it all made sense. Um, if not, let me know and I'll clarify, I guess. But anyway, uh, next week we're going to be talking about Luther and the, the reformers and how uh, their effect um, really changed biblical interpretation and exegesis moving forward, right? So stay tuned for that episode next week for Luther and the Reformers. This week is on Machiavelli, once again, studying, politicizing the Bible. We'll see you next time on Catholics with Bibles. God bless everybody. All right, y'all, as always, that was just so much information and I hope it all made sense. But once again, if you want to study this more, then pick up Politicizing the Bible. It is a bit more of an academic text, but it's awesome, y'all. And if you're really serious, you want to get your hands dirty with a lot of this this history, the nuance. It's just a fantastic book. I'll put it in the show notes. If you have any questions, let me know. We'll see you next time on Catholics with Bibles.